This is the History of the World podcast with me, Chris Hasler. And you're listening to Volume 3, The Classical World. Episode 18, Alexander the Great. episode of the History of the World podcast, we spoke of how the Kingdom of Macedon had become the dominant of all Greek-speaking lands, and how this was achieved under the leadership of their king, Philip II. Over the course of the 100 years leading into the period of this episode, we saw the Athenians fall from power thanks to the Spartans at the conclusion of the Peloponnesian War. Then, in turn, we saw the Spartans deposed from their position of power by the Thebans at the Battle of Leuctra. So in July of 356 BCE, when Philip II's son, Alexander, was born, the Thebans were the dominant power of Greek lands. Philip had only just become the king of Macedon just three years earlier, but he had spent some of his childhood years being educated in Thebes, where he would have been exposed to the advanced culture of the Greeks of the southern Balkan Peninsula. So Philip must have gone back to Macedonia full of ideas and ambition, and all for the benefit of his home kingdom. If the Thebans thought that educating Philip would have encouraged his loyalties, then they couldn't have been more wrong. Alexander's mother was Olympias of Epirus, the daughter of King Neoptolemus I, the king of Epirus. Neoptolemus had died before Alexander's birth, and Neoptolemus's brother, Aribas, was the new Epirate king. It's important to note that Olympias was Philip's fourth wife and when we say his fourth wife we do not assume that this means that he had one at a time. That was not the way for ancient kings. This would often mean that a mother would pledge her loyalty to her son over her husband because a man can only have one mother even if he is allowed more than one wife. We don't know too much about Alexander's infancy and this is mainly due to the fact that there were no known Macedonian historians from this period. So when Alexander eventually became the king, he would commission his own biographer, not only to document his achievements but to make his young life sound fantastic, including stories of him being the only person able to tame a wild Thessalian horse. As we have already discovered, Philip was definitely investing in Alexander, likely preparing him to be his successor. He would want to provide him with the same standards of education that he had personally enjoyed, and so he sent for Aristotle, the student of Plato, who was on the island of Lesbos. 
Alexander was about 13. So this would have been a critical time in his life when he would have been getting prepared to become a man and all that being the precious son of a king would entail. At some point during his childhood, we can suppose that Alexander was first exposed to the works of Homer, such as the Iliad and the Odyssey, the works which may have been around 500 years old at the time, and would have told stories of old Greek peoples living alongside the Olympian gods. These stories would inspire Alexander throughout his entire life. By the age of 16, Alexander was being propelled into a position of importance. While Philip was campaigning, Alexander would be the regent of the realm. This would turn out to not just be a nominal title, but something that Alexander would need to actually do in his father's absence. When a Thracian tribe challenged Macedon, Alexander put the rebellion down and established a city in their territory. This seems to be a very able thing for a 16-year-old regent to do. So it does appear that Alexander had the potential to be a strong leader from a young age. There was no reason for Philip to not take Alexander on campaign with him to really bring him up to speed as a military leader and somebody who could confidently lead Macedonia should anything happen to Philip himself. The priority for Philip in 338 BCE, when Alexander was around the age of 18, was to settle down the Poles of the southern Balkan Peninsula, particularly Thebes and Athens, as they were revolting against Macedonian hegemony. Differing opinions about Alexander's exact role at the resulting Battle of Chironia exist, but what we do know is that he was there, and what we do know is that the Macedonians scored a decisive victory over the Thebans and the Athenians. Alexander, as a commander, must have played a key role in the battle. This was the point in history where we can recognise Macedonian subjugation of all Greek lands of the Balkan Peninsula, save Sparta, who typically stayed out of affairs and posed no issue to the Macedonians. This new Greek alliance is referred to as the Hellenic League. Philip by this time was in his mid-forties and was warming up for his big life ambition, which was to invade the Persians. In the same way that many Greek exiles had headed into Persia over the years, we know that Persian exiles had also headed into Macedonia and undoubtedly shared what they knew about Persia with the Macedonian royal court, including Alexander himself. The Death of Philip Last week we told the story of the death of Philip II, so we won't go into it in too much depth this week. We did tell of how it was a former homosexual lover of Philip named Pausanias who assassinated Philip at his daughter's wedding. Although it was convenient to state that Pausanias, the jilted lover of Philip, decided to take his own revenge on Philip in the worst possible way, there is more to this story than meets the eye. Philip's wife, 
and the mother of Alexander, Olympius, commissioned a memorial to Pausanias, who was reportedly chased down and slain directly after killing Philip. Why she would do such a thing is mysterious, but it does raise suspicions about whether Olympias had something to do with the death of her husband. We are aware that Philip had another son by another of his wives, and his name was Carinus. Carinus was reportedly murdered at the command of either Olympias or Alexander. So would the plan have been all along to get rid of Philip and ensure Alexander's ascension? Alexander was very quickly proclaimed as the new king of Macedon and some of those Greek poles that had been obliged to become a part of the Hellenic League now saw an opportunity to revolt against the Macedonians, now that the mighty and wise Philip was no longer around. The Thebans may have wished that they had been dealing with Philip instead of his son. Alexander's reaction to the revolts may tell us all we need to know about the nature of Alexander. Initially, Alexander attempted to deal with the Thebans by diplomatic means, but as soon as he realised that the Thebans were only interested in opposing the Macedonians, Alexander took an army of over 30,000 men to Thebes, where not only did he achieve a victory at the Battle of Thebes, but he would also destroy the city, sending a clear message out to the other Greek poles that a similar fate may await any of their rebellions against the Hellenic League hegemon Alexander. It is very much worth mentioning at this point that Alexander desired to pick up the ambition of his father Philip and march into the lands of Achaemenid Persia. The reasons for this appear to be to liberate the Ionian cities of western Anatolia who were culturally and linguistically Greek in origin. The Ionian city-states had been torn between the Greeks and the Persians for the last 200 years. Alexander wanted to instigate democratic rule to stand in the face of the Persian tyrannical rule and he would also want to make the Persians pay for their destruction of the Acropolis of Athens during the Persian invasions of Greece as told during episode 12. However, this information is going to be interesting to refer back to when we get further into this story. Entering Persia Alexander would approach the iconic Hellespont, the same Hellespont that the Persian king Xerxes famously crossed 146 years earlier when he was taking his Persian army to conquer Greek lands. Now the opposite was happening. Alexander was leading perhaps as many as 50,000 soldiers and mercenaries across the waterway from Thrace to Anatolia. Significantly, as soon as Alexander crossed the Hellespont, he would be in very close proximity to the legendary city of Troy. This would serve as an important indicator to Alexander's mentality as his mother, Olympias, 
was part of the Epirate royal family, which were the Iacidae dynasty, who claimed descent from the son of the mythological Greek warrior Achilles. According to Homer's Iliad, Achilles was killed by Paris at Troy, so this was something significant to Alexander, who would have believed to have been a direct descendant of Achilles, the heroic warrior of the Iliad, which was a text that Alexander carried with him on campaign and likely something he learned to read as a child while under the tutelage of Aristotle. Reportedly, Alexander paid homage to Achilles at his tomb, but afterwards he would take the shield of Achilles, leaving his own one in its place. Alexander clearly wanted to emulate, if not surpass, the legend of his ancestor Achilles. The Persians were aware of what Alexander was doing. They had already started preparing for it, and as such, Alexander wouldn't have to wait long before his first encounter on Asian soil. Already here we can see how much this king of Macedonia had already learned in his young life. The Persians stood on the opposite bank of the river Granicus as the Macedonians approached from the west. Initially, there was a standoff as both armies sized each other up. Then, Alexander appeared to show his hand. The Thessalian cavalry threatened to advance from the Macedonian left and the Persians reacted to this, which allowed Alexander to deploy his precious companion cavalry from his own personal position over to the right. Coupled with the advance of the Macedonian phalanx, the cavalry caused chaos among the Persian ranks and the Persians were forced to retreat Alexander had scored a huge victory on Asian soil at what would be known to us as the Battle of the Granicus. This victory was significant because it opened up the door for Alexander to access those Ionian city-states of western Anatolia and effectively give them back their freedom to self-rule. Alexander would venture down to the lands of the Ionian Revolt way back at the beginning of the 5th century BCE. He would capture the Lydian satrapy's capital at Sardis and take control of Halicarnassus and Miletus after sieges. Some cities felt more security under the Persians, so there were mixed feelings depending on who you were and where you came from, but it was clear that Alexander was now the boss. Alexander would then move through Anatolia, deeper than the Greeks had ventured before, taking the wealthy city of Sagalassos and then reaching the Phrygian city of Gordian, where we hear of Alexander being challenged to untie a complex knot in order to prove his worth. In the most dramatic version of the story, Alexander struck the knot with his sword, slicing it in half. Now any time we encounter a problem which needs a brash solution, we describe it as cutting the Gordian knot. It was 333 BCE and Alexander had taken control of much of Anatolia and the Persian king Darius III accepted 
that he would now have to meet Alexander head-on and in person. As Alexander and his army passed by the settlement of Issus, Darius quickly moved in behind the Macedonians cutting off their supply lines, giving them no option but to retreat. The Persians outnumbered the Macedonians with around double the army size. Alexander was well and truly cornered and would need to come up with something special to get out of this situation. Next week we're going to take a closer look at this fascinating battle, but Alexander managed to fight his way out of this situation and score an unlikely victory. His tactics were on point and utilising his incredibly able cavalry, he was not only able to escape his predicament, but the Persian king Darius was forced to flee the battlefield, leaving his own mother and both of his wives to become Alexander's political prisoners. Things could not have worked out any better for Alexander. Egypt Alexander's achievements were nothing short of incredible and unthinkable, but he wasn't finished there. With Darius III licking his wounds and regrouping in the east, Alexander would now venture down the Levantine coast towards the fertile lands of Egypt, which had always been an uneasy satrapy of the Persian Empire. The cities of Tyre and Gaza would need to be besieged along the way, but once conquered, Alexander would advance into Egypt, where he would be welcomed by the Egyptians as a liberator. Egypt was always an attractive conquest as it was a country rich in agricultural resource. So Alexander would have another means for supply to him and his army. Alexander showed his respect to the Egyptians by sailing up the Nile to the city of Memphis and sacrificing a bull to the Egyptian god of the sun, Amun. Alexander would then go on to establish a new city on the Mediterranean coast. Alexander believed in city building and had done so on a number of occasions before Egypt. If you remember, he even did it in Thrace when acting as regent of Macedonia while his father was the king. Virtually all the cities were called Alexandria and the one in Egypt is the one that has endured and kept its name until the modern day. The year was 331 BCE and Alexander was dealing with affairs in Egypt. Now, you might recall that Sparta had remained very quiet throughout the rise to power of Macedon and all of Philip's and Alexander's campaigns in and around the Balkan Peninsula. They chose to stay out of things. This is likely to have been a common sense choice by the Spartans but the time would come inevitably when the Spartans needed to do something about their political position, living in the shadows of the mighty Macedonian Empire and probably losing out as a consequence. The Euripontic king of Sparta was King Agis III and it was during this time that Alexander's campaigns overseas that Agis would plan to take on the Macedonians. With Alexander on campaign overseas, the Macedonians at home 
were under the regency of a man called Antipater. Agis led the Spartans to besiege the Arcadian city of Megalopolis and Antipater came down to the Peloponnese and crushed the Spartans with King Agis III making a typically Spartan last stand inevitably being slain. Darius III Alexander, now Pharaoh of Egypt, was now declaring himself as a son of Zeus after visiting the Oracle of Amun at the Siwa oasis in Egypt. And he was now interested in heading east and pressing the Persians for more of their territory. Darius was in a seemingly impossible position and we took a close look at this during episode 2. After the Battle of Issus, where the Persians suffered an embarrassing defeat with Darius's mother and two wives taken prisoner, Darius initially demanded that Alexander withdraw from Asia and release the prisoners. Alexander would dismiss this unlikely demand. After the Siege of Tyre, Darius realised that he would need to take a different approach. He would try a more gracious approach and grant Alexander the lands of Anatolia. Alexander once again was not interested. After Alexander took Egypt and ventured towards Darius in the east, Darius would praise Alexander for his noble treatment of his mother and wives and incredibly all the land west of the Euphrates River which was an incredible offer. Alexander's response left no mystery regarding his intentions. Alexander told Darius that there could only be one king of Persia and that Darius should step aside or be willing to battle. So Alexander marched across to Mesopotamia with his Hellenic army to demand a response from Darius. There was no way that Darius could allow Alexander to take his empire, so he had no choice but to fight. Darius expected this though, and assembled a huge army, and quite possibly the largest army that Alexander had faced. So Alexander crossed both the Euphrates and the Tigris, and met Darius's army near a settlement called Galgamela. So Darius had a larger army and first-hand experience of meeting Alexander in battle, so this time he would surely not make the same mistakes. Alexander forced Darius's hand and went on the offensive, causing Darius to make rash decisions which favoured Alexander's intentions. Ultimately, Darius's own position became threatened, but rather than stay and fight, he fled once again, leaving Alexander victorious yet again. Darius III's story after Galgamela was told during episode 2, but there was no coming back after losing at Galgamela. If the Persians were in any way able to accept his defeat at Issus, then there was absolutely no way that they could accept his defeat at Galgamela. Darius fled in the direction of Bactria, and left Alexander to march on to the cities of Babylon and Susa 
before reaching the Persian Gate, which led to the ancient capital of Persepolis. It would be the satrap Ariobarzanes of Persis who would have to lead the defence at the Battle of the Persian Gate at the beginning of 330 BCE. Ariobarzanes prepared well by building a defensive wall and successfully ambushing the Macedonians. Alexander would retreat and after speaking to some local shepherds he would find a mountain path that would allow him to sneakily encircle the Persians. The result was a massacre. The satrap Ariobarzanes was killed during the chaos and Persepolis, including all of its wealth and riches, was at the mercy of Alexander. Alexander would lay waste to Persepolis, some would say in revenge for the Persian destruction of Athens during the previous century. There was absolutely nothing to stop Alexander and his progress was unthinkably amazing. He had ventured into the largest empire that the world had ever seen as the king of a territory that was barely considered to be worthy of being called an advanced society by the rest of the Greek-speaking lands just 50 years before, and conquered the entire empire, taking control of its capital cities and running the king out of his home. King Darius III would be killed by a usurper called Bessus, but Bessus was eventually captured by Alexander, and Alexander would show no respect to Bessus as a usurper, with some sources suggesting that Alexander caused Bessus a slow and painful death. In contrast, Alexander would give his nemesis, Darius III, a great royal funeral, befitting of a king. The Persian King After Alexander had successfully taken over Persia, he would continue eastwards through places like Parthia and Bactria, establishing cities and gathering the loyalty of the diverse tribes and societies of the remainder of the vast Persian Empire. However, it is at this point that we learn that all was not well in paradise. One of Alexander's greatest military commanders who had stayed loyal to Macedonia under Philip II and throughout Alexander's Persian campaigns was called Parmenion. Parmenion's son was implicated in a plot against Alexander's life and as such he was condemned to death. Alexander was concerned about how Parmenion could react to the proposed execution of his son so in order to solve that problem Alexander sent two officers to assassinate Parmenion. Another prominent Macedonian officer who had served under Philip and then Alexander was a man called Cletus the Black. While campaigning across eastern Persia, Alexander held a banquet in which he had a bitter but drunken verbal exchange with Cletus. Alexander, at the height of his temper, thrust a javelin through Cletus, killing him. It seems that this backs up claims that Alexander was stubborn and hot-tempered. 
It was in 327 BCE that Alexander would meet a Bactrian princess called Roxana. Some describe his reaction to Roxana as love at first sight, and despite some opposition within his ranks, Alexander decided to marry Roxana. Some were fearing that Alexander was becoming more Persian than the Persians, neglecting his Macedonian roots and his Macedonian generals. It may have been that when Alexander took Persepolis that the Macedonian generals and followers believed that they would enjoy the spoils of their victories, but it was clear that Alexander had an insatiable appetite for battle and conquest. By 325 BCE, Alexander had managed to push onto the most eastern extremities of the Persian Empire, winning battles in the Indus Valley, such as the Battle of Hydaspes. Although at this battle there are reports that Alexander's army was sick and tired of the continuous campaigning and complained that they wanted to return west. You may remember that when Alexander was a boy that he was reportedly the only person who could tame a particular Thessalian wild horse, thus indicating his spiritual status as more than just the average human. This horse would become his trusty steed named Bucephalus, and Bucephalus would ultimately perish in the Battle of Hydaspes, breaking Alexander's heart. Other stories exist about Alexander believing that he was more than the average man, including being told that he was invincible by the Oracle of Delphi and his mother Olympias actually being impregnated by a bolt of lightning, meaning that Alexander was a direct descendant from the gods. Instead of heading west, Alexander would lead his army south, believing that there was more work to be done. Alexander would head back west while conquering the lands of the Persian Empire in the south nearer to the Arabian Sea. This area was known in antiquity as the Jedrosian Desert and Alexander would lead a number of troops through this area of the Persian Empire while heading back to Mesopotamia. Estimates suggest that Alexander lost around 12,000 men on this campaign back across Jedrosia. It appears that the difficulty of the terrain and the remoteness of the journey was hugely underestimated and those who perished are likely to have died from starvation, dehydration and exhaustion during the two month long journey. Alexander would eventually reach Mesopotamia but already he was contemplating his next campaigns and his target this time was the lands of the Arabian Peninsula. Traditionally the Achaemenid Persians made up their army with infantry and cavalry from all of the different armies of all of the different areas of the vast empire. Now that the Achaemenid Empire was gone, Alexander, the successor ruler of these lands, had a similar idea. He would allow the veteran Macedonian military to step down and would replace them with Persians. This would not be received well by the Macedonians, 
who seemingly felt unappreciated by Alexander and increasingly viewed him as a king who would be favouring the people who he conquered over those who had helped him in the first place. The reality is that Alexander's Hellenistic legacies continued as far afield as Indian and Bactrian lands whose cultures were changed by the amalgamation of peoples. Alexander, like all great conquerors, would have had to have respected the cultures of the people whose lands he conquered in order to prevent future rebellions. The end of 324 BCE was a bit of a roller coaster for Alexander. While in Ectabana, Alexander's childhood friend and someone who had accompanied him throughout his campaigns, whose name was Hephaestion, caught a fever and died. There was plenty of suspicion that Alexander and Hephaestion's relationship was homosexual, but some historians argue that there is no conclusive evidence of this. Nonetheless, Alexander was absolutely grief-stricken by this loss. However, it wasn't all bad news for Alexander, as his wife, Roxana, fell pregnant at the end of the year. In 323 BCE, Alexander moved on to the city of Babylon to finalise his plans for expansion into the Arabian Peninsula. He had taken the title of King of Kings, often the proclamation of Persian kings, and in Alexander's mind, befitting of his ambitions and abilities. Another of Alexander's close friends and military officers was a man called Medius of Larissa. At the end of May, Alexander would participate in another one of his traditional drunken banquets alongside his friend Medius. After the banquet, Alexander felt ill, but he continued to work issuing orders to his army and carrying out religious rituals. However, his condition worsened and within two weeks, Alexander died at the very young age of 32. It may not be completely out of the question that Alexander was poisoned. He was a great and ruthless ruler and leader, but he was certainly there to be shot down. However, some believe that it was caused by malaria, and the demise of his childhood friend Hephaestion seemed quite similar. Alexander's body was embalmed and was transported to the city of Alexandria in Egypt. His body remained there for a number of centuries, but nobody knows its ultimate fate. The location of Alexander's body today is now a mystery of history. What happened to this vast empire that Alexander had created that stretched from southern Europe and the Balkan Peninsula? Is there any way that it could ultimately pass down to his unborn son being carried by Roxana? Or would the empire fall apart without its great, fearless and invincible ruler. And that's the end of that. 
So a very abrupt end to Alexander's life and many unanswered questions. Now, over the course of the next three weeks, we're going to be taking a closer look at the Battle of Issus, uh, the Battle of Galgamela, and then we're going to be taking a look at the successors of Alexander. So we will ultimately find out what happened in this huge vacuum that was created by this untimely death of Alexander the Great. As for now, I'd like to say thank you for listening to this week's episode. And I do really and truly hope that you enjoyed it and we took you away from the crazy world that we're living in at the moment for half an hour. A little bit of escapism, a nice story about an incredible episode in human history. I do hope that you're keeping safe and well and I do hope that uh, you are behaving responsibly. It's, uh, it's hard work, I know, and it's not what we're used to, but let's, uh, let's keep soldiering on through it together. Now, if you are one of those people who makes a contribution, even a financial contribution, to the History of the World podcast and helps to keep it going... Uh, then you will be one of the people who are invited to be a member of the History of the World podcast, Illuminati. And it is my pleasure to welcome a couple of new members, Daniel Gresham and Bernard Geegan. So thank you for becoming members of the History of the World podcast, Illuminati, an honour that can never be taken away from you. And a big thank you to one of our honorary members of the History of the World podcast, Illuminati, a gentleman called Nick Barksdale of the YouTube channel, The Study of Antiquity and the Middle Ages. Now, if you like your history, you are gonna, you're never going to be able to uh, stop watching his channel. It's full of videos, not least of all, uh, some of mine are on there, which uh, Nick has kindly taken some of the podcast episodes and created... Uh, video versions of them and uh, this week he's created one on Neolithic China which is based on episode 29 of volume 2 I tell you what Nick you certainly pick them I tell you what a complicated subject that is Neolithic China goodness me I didn't know which way to turn when writing that episode but well done and uh, give it a watch if you haven't seen it folks it's uh, it's worth a look. He uses some beautiful imagery and uh, it's quite captivating to watch. So I highly recommend it. Go along to the YouTube channel, The Study of Antiquity and the Middle Ages. Now, one of the History of the World podcast Illuminati members, Suresh Thalanga, uh, sent me uh, a link uh, relating to some of the uh, material of episode uh, or volume one. I should say, on the prehistoric world. So what I'll do, uh, Suresh, I'll post that link onto the social media pages, particularly Facebook. I'll, I'll post it on there so that everyone can enjoy the benefit of reading that. So uh, thank you for submitting that, Suresh. Very kind of you. Now, if you like the podcast and you want to support it, then please don't forget to rate and review the podcast. It really does make a huge difference it helps to expose the podcast to more people and uh, potentially attract more sponsorship and more attention, which is really what makes the podcast successful. So 
please, if you haven't done that, if you haven't rated and reviewed the podcast, please go and do it now. Even if you're a member of the Illuminati, make sure you do that. It's just as important. Now, one of the History of the World Podcast Illuminati members, one of our valued ones, our more valued members of the History of the World Podcast Illuminati, uh, has been inspired into making his own history podcast. So I'd encourage you to go and listen to that. I think he's got a very good, unique uh, style and uh, I think it should be quite a successful podcast. And uh, it's called The History of Finland Podcast by Matti Yokimo. I had the pleasure of listening to the first episode um, just this week and it was very, very interesting. It's a fascinating uh, country, quite like no other. And so um, I encourage you to give that a try and see if it's uh, see if it's Daniel Street. If you like history, I'm sure it's something that you'll enjoy. Give it a try. The History of Finland podcast. Well, that's it for this week. Um, we're gonna uh, uh, we're gonna uh, knock it on the head again for another week. Next week it's gonna be more Alexander the Great. We can't get enough of this guy, Alexander the Great at the Battle of Issus, a very, very important battle and a very interesting battle. We get to see a little bit more about the tactics of Macedonian warfare and the kind of um, the kind of things that they were doing in order to win the battles. And it's, it's something that really does deserve a closer look. So looking forward to that next week, the Battle of Issus. Until next week... Uh, be good, behave yourselves in this uh, crazy world that we're living in nowadays. Do the right thing, protect each other, and uh, I want to see you back here this time next week. Do you want more from the History of the World podcast? Then visit our website, historyoftheworldpodcast.com. You can join our discussion forum and find us on social media. Support the podcast for as little as $1 per month by clicking the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com. The best ones will be read out. Be sure to rate and review the show wherever you listen to us.